0: You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Um, I'm not going to have scriptures on the screen, and we're going to read a lot of Bible today. Well, we'll read some Bible today because it's taken too much time for everything else we've done, um, mostly because of me blowing it. Um, So if you want to scan this, this will get you to the Church Center app homepage where all the scripture and all the little points will be there. What I want to do is close out this series on risk and reward, wind and spirit, because next week begins the season of Advent. And then after that, that's my last Sunday um, for two months, and then I'm going to go on sabbatical for two months. So um, we've got people, we've got men and women who are going to lead us through the season of Advent on Sundays as we gather And then we've got um, some faithful ones to offer us words through January. And then um, after next week, I will see you uh, in February. And and because some of you have asked, my sabbatical is um, mostly going to be filled with Netflix. Um, I'm just kidding. It's not. I'm just kidding. Uh, My sabbatical is actually going to be filled with me um, writing uh, and finishing my dissertation because I have to defend for my doctorate in February. So my sabbatical is not going to be fun um, or relaxing. But it's necessary so I can get this eight-year journey completed. Otherwise, um, I'm going to be kicked out of seminary, and I don't want that on my record. Um, So that's what I'll be doing during that time. But you're going to think I've gone to be with Jesus because I'm going to be unreachable um, so that I can sit and focus. Because I love y'all, and I would love to be with y'all, and I'm going to miss y'all and pray for y'all. But I've got to have this done or it's not going to go well with me. So um, please pray for me uh, as I'm through that season. Uh, I would appreciate it. So, back to this. To this. We've, we asked four questions primarily during this series. Will you risk what it takes to join God in making a future for yourself and others? Do you believe you can take the risk because you believe Christ has already secured the reward? And then this was probably one of the most important questions. Will you let God put you in a position to live what you believe? Mm-hmm. To me, that's a great question to think through. And then the final was, what is motivating you to take the risk? We have to tend to our motives here. And the definitions we operated out of was, up here, was this. Risk is letting God put you in a position to live what you believe, including doing hard things in the face of what seems, M, all my words fall short, I got nothing new. Uh, no, <laughs> hard things in the face of what seems impossible, right? Like, um, this is what, yeah, this is what we call a technical error, um, which is my fault because of the way I uploaded this, uh, the slides earlier. Um, so it's okay, Bob. Don't worry about it, really. Um, so risk is really about letting, we, you know, letting God put you to risk, uh, puts you in a position to live what you believe, even in the face of hard things. Reward was this idea, commitment to the belief that, say this with me, with struggle comes strength, and with perseverance comes purpose. That God is a God who rewards, because God keeps God's promises. And the verse that anchored all of this is Hebrews eleven six. 6. Um, and that scripture, Bob, if you will, says... That without faith it is impossible to please God, since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists, read this with me, and that he rewards those who seek them. So this whole premise of this whole series and the whole premise of this Nehemiah study is built on the belief that God fulfills God's promises. And if we seek God, God will reward us. That God is a God who rewards those who seeks him. And so, if you have your books or if you have your Bibles, if you have your app, we're going to go to Nehemiah. And we're going to, like I said, we're going to do some reading. Now, I want to say this the book of Ezra and Nehemiah are really one book telling two parts of the same story. Because when you read Nehemiah, Nehemiah and Ezra are happening at the same time. Ezra is a book about how Ezra joined God in rebuilding the temple and renewing worship. You with me? It was a book about rebuilding the temple. And renewing the worship of God's people. It's about revival. Nehemiah is a book about. Rebuilding the wall of God's people. Because God's people are defenseless. And being pillaged and assaulted. And brutal things are happening to them. From the surrounding nations. Nehemiah is about rebuilding the wall. And renewing God's community of people. So both are about rebuilding. Both are about renewing. Both are about revival. And both are about how God will reward the risks we take if we lean upon the movement of God. Are you with me? All right, so it is the year 445 B.C., and it's November, which is appropriate that we talk about this. King Darius' grandson is on the throne of the Persian Empire. His name is Artaxerxes I. The Persian Empire is the largest empire in the history of the world in terms of geography, spanning 5.5 million miles. You with me? It's a lot of miles. In Artaxerxes, the king has reigned for 20 years over this Persian Empire. And he's a fairly benevolent king to the Jews. He's, He's really more just tolerant. Now, about 100 plus years ago from this text, stay with me, Judah received the consequences of their disobedience to God and were pummeled by the Babylonian Empire, which is where actually the kiddos are in Big Idea. And as a result of them being pummeled by Babylon, the walls were destroyed, the temple was destroyed, leaving Jerusalem forever vulnerable to anyone who wanted to take what they wanted. And what Babylon did is what all nations often did. They took from the people, those who were the able-bodied, wealthy, educated, and deported them to Babylon and left the peasants and the poor there to fend for themselves. You with me? And so Nehemiah catches word from a friend named Hanani who was a countryman. Nehemiah is a Jew. Nehemiah must have been one of the able-bodied ones, one of the educated ones we're not entirely sure what we do know is he's the cupbearer to the king now if you don't know what a cupbearer is this is the most trusted one of the most trusted and intimate relationships anyone will have with a king the cupbearer is the person who tastes the soup before the king eats the soup to make sure it's not poison if it is poison there's a job vacancy if it is poison, if it's, if it's not poison, it's good. If it is poison, it's, it's bad. Nehemiah had to be trusted. Nehemiah has a strong access point to the king. It's a trusted position. And so when Hananiah comes and makes his way to Nehemiah to let him know that his people are in desperate trouble, Nehemiah is profoundly impacted. Nehemiah 1, verse 3 through 4. He tells it this way, They told me that those in the province who survived the captivity are in great trouble and shame. The wall around Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard this news, I sat down and wept. I mourned for days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. That's his response. Judging by his response, I imagine that Hen and I told him story after story, of tragedy after tragedy and trauma after trauma. And Nehemiah's only response is weeping, fasting, and praying. We can learn something from Nehemiah. That we need to weep. That we need to fast and we need to pray. For one, the solidarity that Nehemiah feels with their suffering is so incredibly thick. Listen to me, y'all. Nehemiah had a comfortable life. Nehemiah had privilege. Everybody say privilege. Power, say power. And position, say position. At the most powerful man in the world at the time, he had everything. Everything was just fine for him. But his solidarity with the suffering of his people overwhelmed him to the point that all he could do was weep and pray and fast. And so, listen to his prayer because we could learn from Nehemiah's humility. And we can learn from Nehemiah's disposition. Listen to his prayer, verse five, Lord, God of heaven, great and awesome God, you are the one who keeps covenant and is truly faithful to those who love you and keep your command. He calls upon God's faithfulness. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I now pray before you night and day for your servants, the people of Israel. Now listen to this, please. this is important. I confess the sins of the people of Israel, which we have committed against you. Both I and my family have sinned. We have wronged you greatly. We haven't kept the commands, the statutes, and ordinances that you commanded your servant, Moses. Now I want to pause there for a moment, because I don't want you to miss what Nehemiah is doing, because it's easy to miss it. Nehemiah is owning the sins of the forefathers and mothers. The sins he's begging God to forgive are the sins that were committed over 100 years ago that led them to this captivity. Are you with me? Nehemiah is owning the sins of the past in order to find revival in the present. Are you with me? Nehemiah is owning those sins so much so with such solidarity that he doesn't say they and them. He says what? We and I. Because Nehemiah lived in a moment, see, where he knew that you can't dislocate the present from the past because the present is always influenced by the past. And if the past isn't addressed, the present will never be redressed because of what happened in the past. He knows that if you don't see history as influencing the present, you will not have a different future. He knows that if you don't see history as influencing the present, you will grow well-adjusted to the injustices of the present that are sparked from the past. Are you with me? I think this has some application today. What Nehemiah does is confess the sins of the mothers and the fathers. As his own. You want to know what it takes to do that? Humility. Humility solidarity with your country folk. With no solidarity, there is no humility. With no humility, there will be no revival. It's like one of my teachers, Resmaa Menekum, once said it's on the screen. A disdain for history sets us adrift and makes us victims of ignorance and denial history lives in and through our bodies right now and in every moment. Nehemiah feels it in his body. He feels the history in his body because his people are being plumaged and pillaged because of the sins of the past. And he feels it in his body in the present. And he refuses to To be schooled by denial and refuse the impact of the past on the present. And he knows that only if a people are willing to see the past for what it is, only then can they confess their sins and call upon God to guide them to repair what has been broken. And this is what Nehemiah does. And so you can see how his prayer continues to unfold, because not only does he call back to the sins of the past as his own sins for which he must confess, he calls back to God's God's promises of the past, asking God to revisit those promises in the present. Verse 8 in your text. Remember the word that you gave to your servant Moses when you said, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments by really doing them, then even though your outcasts live under distant skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, God. They are the ones whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayers of your servants who delight in your honor and your name. Please give success to your servant today and grant him favor in the presence of this man. You see how he calls upon God's promises of the past and now visit the present? I think sometimes we forget God doesn't live in the past because there is no past with God. God is not bound by time. We are the ones bound by time. In our captivity to our assumptions about how time works, sometimes leads us away from opening ourselves up to a movement of God in the present. Nehemiah is not going to do that. So, Nehemiah recognizes a moment, a moment in time where he might have the power to do something, not by his power, not by his privilege. And not by his position alone, but by the favor of God over his power, over his privilege, and over his position to leverage his power, privilege, and position for the good of his people. Because he says in that prayer, Give me favor with this man. Who's the man you think he's talking about? The king. And so, chapter 2, verse 1 The king was about to be served wine. I took the wine. And gave it to the king. Since i would never seemed sad in his presence, the king asked me, Why do you seem so sad, bro? Bro's in there. <laughs> Since you aren't sick, you must have a broken heart. Now look at verse 3. What does it say? I was very afraid. You know why he's afraid? Because it's not good for the king to notice he looks sick. Because if he looks sick, he may not do his job well. And guess who gets sick? See what I'm saying? He knows this is a conversation that's got to happen, and he's scared to have it. Everybody say he's scared. He's scared. He's scared. So then he replies, may the king live forever. I love that. He's it's like, I'm scared. King, you rock. you the best. <laughs> you the best. But then he's honest. Why shouldn't I seem sad when the city, the place of my family's graves, is in ruins? and its gate destroyed by fire. The king asked, what is it that you need? And then listen to what the text says. I prayed to the God of heaven and replied. And what I love about this text is this is Nehemiah shooting up a flare prayer. That's what I call him, as a flare prayer. The king says, what do you need? He doesn't go straight into it. He's like, oh, Lord, give me the wisdom. And then he replies. Sometimes we need to pause and say, oh, Lord, give me the wisdom. Before we reply, he says, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor with you, please send me to Judah, to the city of my family's graves, so that I may rebuild it. With the queen sitting beside him, the king asked me, How long will you be away, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I told him how long I'd be gone. And notice he didn't stop there. He's like, you know, since you are asking. I also said to the king, if it pleases the king, may letters be given to me addressed to the governors of the province beyond the river to allow me to travel to Judah? And may the king also issue a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, directing him to supply me with timber for the beams of the temple? Fortress gates and the city wall and for the house in which I live? The king gave me what I asked, and this is what the text says. For the gracious power of my God was with me. Come on now. This is a man who finds himself in a position to do something. He's got the power, privilege, and position to do it. He's got the ear of the king. He's prompted by the solidarity of the suffering of his own people. He fasts. He weeps. He prays. He shows up to work. He keeps going. The king notices something and says, what is going on, bro? And he says, my people are in ruins. The graves of my families." are being turned into a parking lot. Come on now. Come on. That's what we've done, and that's what's happening. And he says, I need to rebuild the city. And the king says, all right, we'll go. He says, can I have some letters so that I don't, you know, get robbed and killed and arrested on the way? He says, yeah. And he's like, uh, can I have some supplies so that I can do to rebuild and the king says, yeah. Because you know what this story shows? God will use people outside of the kingdom of God to do kingdom of God work. That's right. That's right. Come on. You know what else it shows? We've got to be willing to take the risks to leverage whatever power, privilege, and position we may have so long as it's been baked and soaked in prayer and it's for the good of others. Exactly. And don't be surprised when God makes it so. Yeah. I can't think about anything other than what would have happened if before all of this, when Nehemiah heard what was happening to his people, if his immediate response was to just say thoughts and prayers. Or if his immediate response even was to impulsively respond and not seek time to lament, to fast, and to pray. You know what would have happened? He would have missed his moment, and his people would have missed God's move. What would have happened if Nehemiah had decided that he needed some time off rather than going on to work anyway? What if he would have allowed this sorrow to paralyze him? He would have missed his moment, and his people would have missed God's move. What if Nehemiah would have heard what happened and said, Not my problem. I mean, I'm sad and all, but there's nothing I can do. He would have missed his moment, and his people would have missed God's move. What if Nehemiah would have played it off? Because he was afraid, and he said, nah, king, I'm fine. What if Nehemiah had refused the risk? If Nehemiah would have refused the risk, his people would have missed God's move. Nehemiah didn't deny, he didn't refuse the risk. He carried on, and at the right time, after lamenting, after fasting, after praying, he found his moment, and he stepped into a movement of God. But he had to start with lament, with fasting, with praying, and he had to take the risks. He had to see that the world in which he knew wasn't what it needed to remain. See, because risk always requires what I call prophetic imagination. It requires that we be willing to envision a world that is despite what world is now. We need to be willing to see what's wrong and say it ought not to be that way because Jesus is Lord. We need to be willing to see the betrayals and the hurts and the harms and the sorrows and the injustices. And be willing to say it ought not be this way because Jesus is Lord. We need to be able to say I've got to be generous in my life and there's not enough money in the bank account. But it ought not to be this way and I'm going to believe that Yahweh is the God who provides so I'm going to give anyway. We need to be willing to look at our time and say, I don't have any time on my calendar. I don't have any time on my schedule. I'm going to have to readjust this and readjust that. But I really need to help that family. I really need to do that thing. It ought not to be this way. And I'm going to trust that God's going to give me the time to do what I need to do. Amen. We've got to be willing to take the risk. And it first requires a prophetic imagination. But what else it requires is a belief in new possibilities. We need to believe that God can, even when everybody says, you ought not to. We need to believe that God can when everybody says, I tried and I can't. Well, I ain't you. That's right. That's right. Come on. I remember when I was younger. I was a younger man. Just two years ago. <laughs> I aged 20 years during COVID. And 40 pounds. When I was 21 years old and I was a stockbroker 20 years old in the was. And I was a stockbroker and I kept meeting these men and women living through homelessness. And then I became associate minister at this church. It was a two-year tree of training, uh, tree, uh, preacher trading track that I was on. I remember I um, was working with some people in homelessness, and I remember uh, one of my elders wanted to have an elders meeting with me, and he called me into the elders office with the elders and my co-worker, and he said, uh, Fred, young man, I heard you've been uh, doing things with the homeless in our city. This is a city of 250,000 people. And I said, yes, sir, I have. So he pointed out, he turned around this article. And this article was an article of a homeless man who had stabbed this person to death. And he said, do you want this to happen to you? I thought to myself, what can I answer? What kind of question is that? Sure, I don't mind being gut stabbed. I mean, no. I don't want that to happen to me. I said, no. He said, well, then you don't need to work with homeless people because they're dangerous. Now, he's my elder. I'm 21 years old. Now, this may not surprise y'all, but, you know, I have a tendency to rebel against things. (laughs) But I remember asking him, so if I, a Christian, who believes in resurrection, is so afraid of dying that I'm afraid to live, then who's going to love the folks who aren't going to stab somebody. Now, it wasn't quite that eloquent because that was 20-some years ago, but I get my point. And so I did it anyway. And my life changed because that's when I met Mr. Clifford who changed my life. The reason there's a nonprofit that I get to be a part of and I get to be a part of a church who understands what it means to love people in social displacement started because we had to take a risk. Risk requires prophetic imagination. It requires a belief in new possibilities. But it also requires something else. It requires that we never, ever, ever do it alone. Risk requires that we not do it alone. Listen to uh, chapter 2, verse 9. So I went to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. The king had sent officers of the army and cavalry with me. When this guy named Sambalit... Now, I'm adding the this guy part in there, just so you know who to... When Sambalit and the Horonite and another guy named Tobiah, the Amorite official, heard this, they were very angry that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And when I reached Jerusalem and had been there for three days... For three days, I reached Jerusalem, I'd been there for three days. I sat out at night, taking only a few people with me. I didn't tell anyone... What my God was prompting me to do for Jerusalem. And the only animal I took was the one I rode. You know what DMI teaches us? That it's not wise to take risks alone. You know what else he teaches us? Is that we ain't got to post at God and everybody else on social media what God's doing in our lives. That there are some times where we need to keep things in our heart between us and us. And a small group of people that we trust do the survey, do the due diligence, do the work. The story goes that for days and nights, Nehemiah and this small group of people surveyed the wall. They surveyed the damage. They put it all together because risk not only requires that we not do it alone. Risk requires thoughtfulness. So we take a community of people and we enter into this space that we have to climb and we discern together what needs to be done. We ain't got to tell everybody. What we do at that point is we bring what we found as a community to the larger community, and we get it done. And that's how the story unfolds. They take what they learned as a small community, they explored it together, we call that piloting something, they discerned it together, and then they brought it to the larger community to get it done. But you know why they needed each other? Because you know what this text tells us? They had opposition from the jump. Beloved, anytime there's a movement of God, there will be opposition to that movement. I don't know where in our minds we think that if God is behind it, somehow we ain't going to have opposition. You know what the rest of the text tells us when you read it? That the opposition got so bad that they had to have a hammer in one hand and a sword in the other. One of my favorite texts in all of the Bible that as we repaired the wall, some of us had weapons, some of us just had tools, and then some of us had a weapon in one hand and a sword in the other. Just because it's a movement of God doesn't mean it's not going to come with opposition, which is why you can't do it alone, but it's why you've got to take the risk. Because you know why? You know why it's important that you know there's going to be opposition? Because taking risks are, are you ready for this? Risky. And sometimes the risk is going to come from the deniers and the rejecters. Yep. Sometimes it's going to be people inside the camp. Sometimes outside the camp. But if it's a movement of God, don't do it alone and do it anyway. Amen. Wow. Even if you've got to keep one tool in one hand and a weapon in the other. Whatever you do, you just keep doing it. Because if it is of God, it will not be defeated. If God has called you to something, God will give you what you need to go through it. But hear me out. God will not call you to something alone. You hear me on this, please? Nehemiah is the one who received the word, but he created a discerning community with him. There's no solo endeavors. And what I mean by that, too, is not your family. I'm not talking, so let's talk families. A lot of times families think when God's calling us something, so we're gonna keep it quiet as a family. No, you need to discern in community with you as a family because you are one. If you're in a family, you're biblical, you're one. So you're only one. So we discern these together, and then we take the risk, trusting that if God is behind it, God will remain in front of it, over it, below it, beside it, all around it, and there will be success. But it will come at a price. And it may be hard, but it will be worth it. And when it is worth it, you will know it. And your risk will become your revival. You want to know why I think that? Because at the very, very end of this book, there's a little verse that says, at the very end, that once they had rebuilt the wall, Ezra had preached a long, long sermon, it says. They repented of their sins. They renewed their commitment to covenant. They prayed their prayers. And then they did what we got to learn to do better. They threw a party. And they threw a party that was so loud that it says the sound of joy in Jerusalem could be heard from far away. Beloved, we have a lot to celebrate. When we take these risks and we see God move, and then we come out the other side, even if we come out the other side bruised, battered, and tattered, we come out the other side with what it was we set to accomplish, accomplished by the power of God, then we need to celebrate what God has done. When we paid off the debt, we celebrated what God had done. When we were able to build the homes in Turaco, we celebrated what God has done. When we created a relationship, by the grace of God, with our own city, where we are now like celebrating social services workers and human services workers, that is a mark of the witness of this church willing to take risks. We celebrate what God has done. And I'll say this, when this church comes to a place and it meets the shortfall that is in our budget, in our savings account that Jonathan's going to speak to in a little bit that we spoke to last week, when we meet that shortfall, we will celebrate what God has done, and then when we move into a capital campaign... To rebuild, renew, and restore the presence of this church in a fresh way for this city. Not to build a bigger building or a better building so we can be comfortable for eight hours. But I'm talking like turning you know, church buildings into daycare incubation centers so that under-resourced mothers and fathers can have daycares that they can actually afford. I'm talking about something beautifully creative that can change things. When we do that, we will celebrate what God has done. That's right. Amen. But before we celebrate we got to be willing to take the risks. Yeah. So, beloved, let's do that. Let's press in. During the season of Advent, we do the soul-searching. We do the gut-checking. We acknowledge the darkness of the dark, but the brightness of the flickering light. We remember that when God makes a promise, God keeps it. Because we remember during Advent, the Christ who has come,